0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I hope your family was okay and that you ate well and all that. But we're not done with food yet because today's interview is with Brian Terry a noted chef and cookbook author. He edited this new book called Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. And as you can probably glean from the title, this isn't just a regular Degler cookbook, but a collection of a lot of elements that make up culture. And while it does tackle a lot of subjects that can be dense, you know, like uh, history and geography and anthropology, it does it in this fun and effortlessly readable way. And that's by design. See, Terry is a food justice activist, and you can imagine he finds himself in rooms with a bunch of other like serious important people talking about serious important stuff. But as you'll hear in this interview with here and now Scott Tong, the people Terry's trying to connect with often aren't in these rooms. And Terry's work, and especially through this book,
1: is all about inviting people in to have a seat at the table. Give it a listen. Brian Terry is in the business of preserving African American recipes and the stories behind them. He is a noted cookbook author and chef in residence at the Museum of the African American Diaspora. Terry is editor and curator of a new book, Black Food Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora, which, as the title suggests, is a full sensory experience, not just a bunch of recipes. Brian Terry joins me now and welcome.
2: Thanks for having me on, Scott.
1: Now, it's hard to find a word to describe this project. You call it a communal shrine to the shared culinary histories of the African diaspora. So it's a shrine. It's a set of essays. It's artwork. There's even a Spotify playlist attached to this. What was the creative vision that started all this?
2: We need to go back to 2015 when I started my role as chef-in-residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. And Linda Harrison, the former executive director, invited me to co-create this program. She wanted to move the museum beyond just being a fine art museum and really being a space for community to gather and to help to educate and and move people. And so we started this program. The first event we did was Black Women, Food, and Power, which you know is one of the chapters uh, in the book. And I expected people to drive up from Los Angeles, or I thought people might even fly in from uh, Portland. But the fact that we had people flying from the East Coast for a two-hour program in our our museum just showed me that there was a hunger Mm. for this type of programming. And so I thought about doing it in book form. But it was always on the back burner until 2020 when we saw the uprisings, and I decided that this was the time to gift the world with a Mm. book that had these diverse voices throughout the African diaspora talking about their various experiences and connection with black food
1: yeah well I mean there is so much to this project the chapters are big themes and narratives whose stories are told in the food so let's look at chapter 2 migration and we'll weave in a song you picked for this chapter all blues from Miles Davis (laughs) Last night I made a recipe from page 87 in this chapter of migration the rice pudding flan. Whoa. Flan de arroz con dulce, sticky rice custardy flan, caramelized sugar. It's a lot of work, <laughs> but also very smooth and, and sweet. But I gather the rice in this recipe helps to map the geography and the important history here, yeah?
2: Yeah. I mean, the rice is a through line throughout black food. And there's a complicated history with um, people of African descent in rice. We know that many of the enslaved Africans that were bought from the Senegambia region to the um, New World, they were brought because of their expertise in rice growing. (laughs) But this recipe, just just so you know, this is just a, such a standout, and you can tell me. It is labor-intensive, Paola Valle Oh, is my goodness. I mean, there's template.
1: caramelizing the sugar on one hand, and then there's the <laughs> rice on the other hand, uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, making the, the, the custard and baking it and then sticking it in the fridge. My goodness. Was it worth the labor? Did it, w- what was the payoff for you, Scott? Oh, it, it's so worth it. First of all, I mean, it, it makes so much, and you can only eat a little bit at a time.
2: It's rich. It's
1: rich. <laughs> It's a rich but powerful and sweet experience because like this history, like this cookbook, there are so many flavors that are combined here.
2: Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and, and, and I'm glad you just talked about the kind of multiplicity of offerings to the book, because one thing that I was clear about when I would go to these national gatherings that were geared towards fixing our broken food system, I felt like there are a lot of educational and, and class biases in these spaces. And so often the conversation started with the heady intellectual ideas around food or, you know, immediately talking about the public policies. And it bothered me that the people most impacted by our quote unquote broken food system, whether they're migrant farm laborers, or um, people living in urban centers that are often described as food deserts, I didn't see these Mm. people in the room. And they certainly weren't at the table driving the conversation about how we should be creating change in our food system. Those moments helped me think differently about how we can help people change their habits. And when I think about my own kind of origin story, I like to think that my food justice activism started when I was in high school and I heard the hip hop song, Beef, which so brilliantly talks about the, the, the violence of factory farming and the impact on animals. Let us begin now with the cow The way it gets to your plate and how The cow doesn't grow fast enough for man So through his greed he makes a faster plan He has drugs to make the cow grow quicker Through the stress the cow gets sicker 21 different drugs of pump Into the cow in one big lump Storytelling isn't just about like text, it's about recipes, it's about the visual art. You know, I, I think that there's so many ways that we can help people have this immersive experience and really move them to think about their own habits and attitudes and politics and how they might want to shift them. And I think a recipe can be just as powerful as a Manchetti intellectual essay in doing that.
1: There is so much about origin stories, especially in this chapter, There's one essay in the migrations chapter that calls food the source code from village to dungeon to canoe to the plantations. Boy, I love this term source code. What does it mean to you? food
2: carries history it carries memory it connects us with our ancestors the land from which we've come whether it's the kind of real or imagined um, land of our ancestors and i think that it's important for us to connect with this so that we really know who we are and that we can move Mm. towards liberation
1: speaking of liberation that's the, the one other chapter i wanted to talk to you about land liberation and justice chapter four in your cookbook You chose one song for this section Herbie Hancock's Watermelon Man. Let's listen to that for a second. the watermelon, of course, can carry a racist stereotype. Why did you pick this song as one of the songs for this section?
2: I'm glad you brought up the fact that there's a history of racial stereotypes and African-Americans. And, you know, I've been aware of this history since I was a child. Um, It was something that my family talked about. As they saw it, watermelon is one of our sacred fruits. You know, it was one of the crops that many enslaved Africans, um, newly freed Africans, I should say, (laughs) after emancipation. This was a way that they had financial um, sustainability. They would sell watermelon to actually provide for their families. And there was the longest time, Scott, where I refused to eat watermelons. And it was because I didn't want Hmm. to reproduce or buy into these uh, racial stereotypes and me eating watermelon Hmm. would, um, you know, substantiate whatever biases some of my um, classmates or (laughs) their families might have had. Me making that choice was what I needed to protect myself at the time, but also getting over that hump and and really embracing this. I mean, look, watermelon, if you, if people haven't had fresh from the farm watermelon that's grown Uh in the South, you know, it's just, you can't, night. It's sweet. It's hydrating. It's one of the most perfect foods, I think, for like a hot summer day. Mm. And so Watermelon Man, Herbie Hancock's song is, is quietly kind of like, you know, a theme song for me. And it, it really symbolizes my own ability to grow and also um, the importance for me to just live my life without the concern of the white gaze. Like if I like watermelon, I'm going to eat watermelon. And I don't care what anybody <laughs> says about it. Yeah. So.
1: Now one dish from uh, the liberation chapter that I'm planning to make is okra and shrimp purlew. It's a dish Mm -hmm. with Carolina gold rice, garlic, onions, ginger, okra, and shrimp. The recipe says it is a dish of pain, resilience, and celebration. Mm. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, Mm. But again, there's kind of rice and forced labor, and it's in the liberation section of the book. Uh, Why? Yeah,
2: This is one of the dishes... That is a staple of the um, the Gullah Geechee people, from which um, B.J. Dennis, the the chef who offered this recipe, those are his people, and um, you know I, I think that this just goes back to the point that I made earlier about the way in which food can carry these um, histories of forced migration, of disruption of cultures. But I didn't want that to be the focus of the book. I wanted the book to be about our agency, our brilliance, our magic, you know, what what happens when we aren't focused with this albatross of white supremacy. And 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 I think this is one of those dishes that represents that. It's it's drawing on this history and it's, you know, rice is obviously such an important staple and contested ingredient in terms of the history in the, the Carolinas, but just the ingenuity, creativity, using what's on hand, sea animals, which are such an important part of uh, Gullah Geechee cuisine, and then okra, mm. which is you know one of the staples from Western Central Africa that we see throughout the diaspora. And so ultimately, I feel like this one dish is full of stories in so many ways, I think represents what I see as this kind of cutting and pasting and reworking and remixing of ingredients and cooking traditions and flavor profiles throughout the Black Diaspora that create these dishes. I hope the book would really push people to dig deeply and and learn more about, like, the origins of not just the food, but the people who created it.
1: The book is Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. And the editor and curator is Brian Terry. Brian Terry, great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. And you can find the two recipes Brian Terry and I talked about at hereandnow.org. Try the flan. It's here and now.